I told myself I'd never do a sports analogy, but here we are. We have arrived. Y'all know what that is? That is the logo of the world's greatest football team. Cowgirl. Man, look at you guys. In one fail swoof, we have created dissension and disunity in the church. You know what? We've created it over is favoritism, which will be our subject matter of today. And just so easily, as we get wound up over a football team, which all your opinions are wrong and mine is right in this case, um, and the, in the same respect, we, we must not, if we are to live in the kingdom, we must not look at one another with favoritism at all, but with acceptance. So, there is no favoritism in the kingdom. Last week, Stephen covered James chapter 1, 19 through 27, pointing out the need for us as disciples of Jesus to be teachable. That we grow through humility and holiness, that we look to the scripture for direction, and lastly, that we worship with our walk. And so today, James in the text is going to continue this theme of worshiping with our walk. He is going to further show us specifically how there can be no favoritism in the kingdom of God, because favoritism is contrary to who we are in Christ. And so James is going to gently inform us that this condition of sin has no room in the kingdom of God or in our church. So please stand with me as we read James chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith. And our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in. If you look with favor at the one wearing fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place. And yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool. Haven't you made distinctions amongst yourself? And become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act. As those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May I have a seat? 
Favoritism, according to Merriam-Webster or Webster's Dictionary, trans, uh, describes it this way, defines it this way. It's the unfair practice of treating some people better than others. And the Greek word translated favoritism in James 2 literally means to receive according to face. So in other words, to show favoritism is to make judgments about people on the basis of their outward appearance. And so James is going to call us to reject this. He's going to call us to be a community of love. We are to be a community of love. I want to draw our attention back to verse 1 because I think this is the key statement. One of the key statements in this entire text today. It says, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, don't sin in this way as you hold on to the faith in Christ. Because favoritism is inconsistent with God's character. So this takes us to the attributes of God, right? Well, impartiality is an attribute of God. And we see it across scripture. Let me give you some. Some places we see this, Old and New Testament. Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, mighty, awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. Deuteronomy 10, 17. Or we see in Romans two eleven, For there is no favoritism with God. Same in Ephesians 6, 9. There is no favoritism with him. And in Acts 10.34, where Peter it brings the gospel to Cornelius, this Gentile, and he has this like moment of clarity. Here's what he says. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. Showing favoritism is inconsistent with God's character, and it's antithetical to the gospel. And therefore, it's incompatible with faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So we can't do both. We can't say in one hand, I'm holding to faith in Jesus Christ. And in the other hand, deny his attribute, his character and his values. Showing favoritism is inconsistent with God's character. So that they're kind of, this takes us to this like crossroads of community, right? So we can be one or two kinds of a a community. We can be a community of favoritism, which for many of us, we might go, no, of course not. That's not us, right? We don't struggle with that. Or we can be a community of love. I think it's more dangerous um, and tempting than we may really think or believe. I remember growing up in South Dallas and where Brittany and I went to school, really everyone went to one of three churches, okay? And they had two were really large churches that had these quite famous pastors at their helm, right? And then the other church was a small church that made, that was an unimpactful church. I'll tell you why it was unimpactful in a minute. The first large church, I remember a friend of mine telling me a story about time he went and visited this church. Well, him and his family had wanted to go to this church because this preacher was famous and everybody else in the neighborhood kind of went there. And so, man, they they got up, they got there early because they wanted to sit in the front. 
And so they got there early. They went to the front and they sat down, right? Probably about where Stephen is. Well, the place that they had chosen to sit, there were some problems with that. You see, those seats were reserved for the church's highest tithers. And so they were promptly instructed to get up and move seats. Now, I see many of you shaking your heads like, never, right? Like, I will cut you, try to make me move my seat, right? That's, I mean, it's crazy, right? Like, we don't have to be rocket scientists to know, no, that ain't right. Like, I don't have to be a seminary graduate to sit here and figure out that that is not, that's not Jesus. That's not his church, right? Well, the small church, well, let me take a step back. You know, that church, uh, the gospel at that church was skewed and over time replaced with a health and wealth gospel. You can't hold them both, right? Now, the small church, that was unimpactful. The problem with this church was that it did not reflect the community that it was in. It was a church of one race who rejected diversity And neglected the promotion of the gospel. Because of comfort. We're going to circle up our wagons. And stay who we were a hundred years ago. And not go out of these walls. Proclamation of the word. And the gospel. And reach the people that God has called into the city. And so that church never reflected the place that they were called to serve. And so therefore it was unimpactful. Now, the other church, the other large church was vastly different than the other two. This church was committed to God's word. It was committed to the gospel. It was selfless. They were selfless in their service to the poor community of Dallas. And they were committed specifically to fathering the fatherless. This church was led by a pastor named Tony Evans, Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship. And Pastor Tony led that church in making a gospel impact in South Dallas and some of the most impoverished areas in Dallas with the gospel, never, never forsaking the gospel and God's word in the process. And I think there's been some real fruit of that leadership. He's the first African-American to ever have his own study Bible. This is very recent, which is pretty powerful. And a testimony to this church being a community of love. And now impacting who knows how many people in the future. So two churches display concrete favoritism. And they were out of step with the gospel. And one church was a community of love that reflected the gospel in everything that they did. I don't know what's going on with my voice today. Mike Harris had me at a men's conference. So I was yelling a lot. So bear with me. The community of favoritism, church, is not the community that God has called us to be. Because it is contrary to God's values. We see in James 2, 2 through 4, this. Lost my, lost my spot. It says this, For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, 
look with favor on one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place. And yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or stand in the back or sit at my feet. That's what this is saying. Haven't you made distinctions amongst yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? If we conduct ourselves in this manner, we will have become judges with evil thoughts. And a church that was meant to be a gospel community and to push back the darkness in Harker Heights will become a safe haven for wickedness. That's what's at stake. Do we want to be a, a community that's void of the gospel? I sure hope not. I did not leave comfort to come on this church plant for us to forsake the gospel. And I don't think any of you did either. We heard a call and a mission to push back darkness with the light of Christ. And so we must hold fast to the gospel of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And release any, any thought of favoritism in the process. John MacArthur once said that we tend to put everyone in some, side, some type of stratified category. Higher and lower than other people, right? Like we categorize folks just naturally. Some has to do with their looks. Or maybe what they wear, their wardrobe. Has to do with what kind of car they drive or what kind of house they live in. I would add maybe the neighborhood they live in. I'm not going to that person's neighborhood. My car might get broken into. I don't know. Or or the the job that they have, right? I know for officers it might be a struggle to like reach out to any enlisted guys uh, with the with the gospel or vice versa or whatever. Might be the job. It might sometimes have to do with their race. Sometimes with their social status or their outward characteristics of personality. I'm just an introvert. That person's an extrovert. And we just don't jive because they're all, all in my business all the time. You know, the funny thing is that all of those issues, they are with God, non-issues. They are of no significance at all. And they mean absolutely nothing to him. Did you know that statistically speaking, eight in ten American congregants still attend services at a place where a single racial or ethnic group comprises of at least 80% of the congregation? Reminds me of something Martin Luther King Jr. said. He said that the most segregated day in America is on Sunday. We are many, many years past that, right? And what does that tell us about our hearts? Basic observation of the world tells us that our, man, the sin of favoritism is in us. Because we like comfort. And being around the people that make us comfortable, like, that's nice. That's safe space, right? Maybe it's with your same race that you feel most comfortable. Maybe it's with people who have the same kind of job as you or influential people or maybe 
for the downtrodden, you like being with other downtrodden because maybe it makes you feel a little better that there are other people like you. I don't know. But what it becomes is a wall that keeps us from reaching out with the gospel to one another. And this is what James is calling us to reject. So how do we, how do we guard against falling into this trap? Well, verse 5 instructs us by reminding us of who we are. Here's what it says. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? We must not forget where we came from and who we are in Christ. We must not forget that just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin in this way, death spread to all people. Because all sin, that's what Romans 5.12 says. There was a time when every single one of us was spiritually bankrupt. All spiritually poor and all in great need. Everyone on the same level in our, in our death. We were all enemies of God and rebels of the king. But God, right? But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. That's who we are in Christ. We are saved by grace. We were called out of our death into our life, made a new creation. That is who we are now. And I thank God that he did not show partiality in saving us. And so we cannot show partiality in our community that he saved us into. We cannot. We have to cross the aisle. And love one another. So what's the application? Like, I don't feel like I really show favoritism or partiality or discrimination or what, whatever definition for putting people or viewing people in a different way, right? You may not really feel that way. And you, and you might not be guilty of this. That, that is good, right? But we should still, when we come across a text like this, ask God to examine our hearts. Lord, please press it out of me if it's there. I beg you, this is not who I want to be. And this is not the community that you have saved me into. I want to be a reflection of your gospel. I want to value the things you value, and I want to carry attributes that you carry if I can. I want to follow your example, Jesus. I want to be like you who sits at the table with sinners, who crosses the aisle for the sake of the good news. That's who I want to be. And so we ask God to examine our hearts, and we ask him to help us not judge, but to welcome the people that God has united us with under Christ. That means that the gospel calls us to being uncomfortable. And this is really difficult for us in the West, right? We are slaves to comfort. I like to be uncomfortable. I like to be comfortable. I like to make other people uncomfortable. No, I mean, it's true. I like to be comfortable. You know, I'm flying out to California right after this. And one of the things when I check in, 
immediately what I try to do is get in the aisle seat. The first thing. Because in the aisle seat, my knees don't start hurting. I'm not all cramped up. And I can get out whenever I want, right? It's a sweet spot to sit on a plane. And you know what? Anytime I don't get the aisle seat, I'm not happy about it. Like, I go up to that desk and I'm like, tell me you got something. They're like, well, we'll tell you what. We'll pay you money to go on a different flight. And I can't do that because I got to work. But... I hate being uncomfortable on a plane. There have been times where I've texted Brittany like, this person's arm is on me right now. I don't like it, you know. Uh, My dad's the same way. And for some reason, people always like to eat uh, like Mexican food in the airport. And you carry that smell with you on the airplane. And that makes it uncomfortable for other people also. But there's just... In every situation of our lives, we would pick comfort over being uncomfortable, right? Like when you get in the car, uh, wives, you want to choose a radio station, right? Yeah. Why? Megan. (laughs) Because because you want to listen to what you want to listen to, and your husband listens to not the same stuff, right? I don't enjoy that mess, uh, death metal or whatever he listens to, right? We're trying to listen to pop music or I don't know what ladies listen to. Just listen to the Bible. Everybody's happy. All right, we want to be comfortable, but the gospel calls us to be uncomfortable. I think about one of my friends who I work with. Uh, he told me the story once of a situation that happened to him. Now, this guy was a, is a, Navy, or was a Navy SEAL. Okay, career, Navy SEAL, 22 years in the SEALs. And this guy specifically reached the mountaintop of what you can do in the Special Forces community. So, um, yeah, baddest man on the earth, one of. And he told me this story once about how he was going to church with a friend. And, and you got to really take that back to understand this. I mean, we're talking 22 years deploying to one real region, dealing with one specific group over and over again. And when you're dealing with life or death with one group of people, I can tell you from personal experience, you start feeling some kind of way about that group of people. It doesn't make it right. So my friend, he tells me, he's got some hate in his heart for Middle Eastern people. Because of deployment after deployment after deployment after deployment. Well, he goes to church with his friend one day. And they go and they sit in the front. No one makes a move. It's a good church. And they sit in the front and unbeknownst to him, they had a guest speaker that day. A Jordanian preacher. A Middle Eastern man. And my buddy's sitting there, and this guy is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. And it's like, this doesn't fit. Uh, Was it round hole, square peg? Like, this is not happening. This can't be right. And towards the end of the service, this Jordanian preacher looks at him and says, can you come up here? I guess he had some kind of face about him. He had him come up there. And that guy says, I want to pray for you. 
And I, I think the church needs to pray for you. I've just been feeling it in my spirit the whole time I've been up here. <laughs> he goes up because now he's got the pressure of a congregation, right? He goes up and that, that man lays his hand on him and prays for him. And my friend tells me it was like his heart melted in that moment. Because this community was a community of love. That's what it means to live in a kingdom of love. Because God's love always trumps comfort. My buddy was uncomfortable. But he needed that. Because it trumped wickedness and his hate. We are to live in a kingdom of love. Not just be a community of love. But we live in a kingdom of love. James 2, 8 through 13 says this. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Thanks, James. Verse 9. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a, go ahead and say it, a lawbreaker. And so speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James makes it crystal clear. There are two groups, right? First group is, we'll call it the love your neighbor group. Okay. Second group is the judging or the merciless group. Two groups of people. What group lives in the kingdom? Huh? Love your neighbor group. Which group reflects the salvation that God has given them? The love your neighbor group. The text says that there's a prescription for living in the kingdom of God. That means something necessary. Love your God, love your neighbor, and you're doing well. We, this is a reference back to Mark 12, verses 29 through 31, when Jesus was answering a question that a scribe posed to him. Hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Here's what he says. The most important is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. This picture of the kingdom stands in contrast to our culture who would say that it's all about you. And so love yourself. And serve yourself. That's comfort, right? But the kingdom of God, however, is a countercultural kingdom that calls us to love God and to love others. That it's not all about you, it is all about God. James makes it very clear that favoritism is not simply disrespectful to people, it is sin against God. And therefore, it cannot stand in the kingdom of God. 
Verse 9 says, if you show favoritism, you commit sin. It is sin because it is contrary to the character and command of God. And because favoritism is a sin, there is no place for it in the hearts of God's people. And it certainly has no place in the church. So in the kingdom and in the church, we are to like verse 12 says, to speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. That means the words that come from our mouths, the gospel is for everybody. And you are called to speak it to everybody. That means your your noisy neighbors. That means my neighbor who just bought five pit bulls and they've been breaking our fence and going nuts. But my those neighbors probably won't hear this sermon, Stephen. That means that when the opportunity arises that I'm called, even though those daggum dogs, even though that, I proclaim the good news to them because they desperately need it. The same way I desperately needed it when my daddy shared the gospel with me. That means your coworker that drives you nuts, you get an opportunity and you proclaim the good news. That means, veterans in here, when you go to the VA and you sit in front of your doctor, you make them uncomfortable because you're going to give them the greatest prescription that they ever needed. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Ask my counselors. They hate seeing me. That means, for many of us, the people that make us feel the most unsafe or the most uncomfortable, that is who I should be speaking to, speaking life into. And it also means that we are to act like we are being judged by the law of freedom, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ frees us to live counterculturally, to serve selflessly, to love without condition, and to enjoy the righteousness of God. Act like it. Act like you've been saved by grace and speak like it without favoritism. Right before I got up here, I had a little thought, so I wrote it on my hand so I wouldn't forget. That's how you write sermons. You do it right before you stand up. So I last year I did 11 sessions for Mighty Oaks. So... That was a little over 200 men. And most of them were not believers when they got to that program. And many of them get accepted and surrendered their lives to Christ. And uh, you know what? One of the fears all these guys have. Neil, if you find me a church, will they accept me? Every single session I go to. That's the fear. Why would that be a fear? Because it's happened. Part of my job is finding churches all all over the country for these guys and sending them to them. And I call the pastors of those churches and I ask questions. I got a guy with purple hair and tattoos from head to toe. 
Are you going to ostracize him? Or are you going to meet him in his seat? And sometimes, you know what I hear from pastors? Well, we're not that. We're probably not the church for him. I hear that trash. Oh, God, let it never be so of Christ Community Church. And let us always be a safe haven for those who have been united with us under Christ. That should be our prayer. And that should be our aim. Christ Community Church, don't forget that God saved you when you were his enemy. You were spiritually dead and he made you alive. So love your neighbor, even if they are different than you. Show mercy, not judgment, and devote yourself to Christ's likeness because Christ was impartial. Let's pray.